0: tests of orthodox christianity did you get the three tests that they uh falls within three realms in chapter two and i think we read all of these sections there's the moral test do not walk if you do you walk in the light as he is in the light if you don't walk in the light then you're not of uh you're not a christian I mean, I don't know how to say it, you're, you know, you're a liar, or whatever, however you want to put it. Um, and, and throughout this, John is going to use, in other words, he is posing the possibility throughout that there are people who are saying that they are Christians. I mean, that's precisely the problem they're up against, right? That there are people claiming to be Christians who are not following his tests, and who in fact fall outside of an orthodox Christianity. And that's not strong enough, because John is going to say, they're the Antichrist, and they're of the devil. And yet they are in the church, claiming to be the true Christians, the true enlightened ones. So he gives us these tests. So, do you walk in the light? Are you obedient? Because we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. If you say, I have come to know him, and you don't walk as he walked, then you're a liar. This is John's language. The truth, there's no truth in him. So, you can have your doctrine down, you can have your, you know, I accepted Jesus into my heart down. But if you do not walk as Jesus walked, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. Uh, Harsh words, but not mine. They're John's. But nonetheless, I think we need to to, uh, judge just as harshly uh, ourselves and others. That is, that that our goal as a community is obedience. To to do what Jesus did. It's not... uh, you know, simply to to do something, uh, you know, doctrinally or in our heads. So by this we know that we are in Him, the one who says He abides in Him ought Himself to walk in the same manner as He walked. Uh, a few years back there was a, a book you know that uh, that talked about this that that was the test or everything. and I forgot the name of the book but in His steps. In his steps. Thank you. Uh, The next test is the social test, Uh, the love test. Do you love or hate your brother? And this is a problem in this group of people because some of them have cut themselves off from the fellowship. They are disrupting, they are leaving the fellowship and saying that they then are the true Christians Because they have this esoteric understanding. They have an insight that these more ordinary Christians, they would say. John says the one who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Uh, That again, uh, you're of the, your father the devil is the way he's going to put it. The third one, do you know the third one? Can you guess? is what? Uh, This one we didn't read about, so I won't fault you. But it's the belief or the doctrinal test. Uh, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Uh, This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So he's saying that if you deny Christ, you're denying the Father, uh, you're denying God. The language here, yes? So there is uh, the moral test, that do you do what he does, do you walk as he walked? There's the social test, that is, uh, and, and obviously these wouldn't be strictly, uh, Absolutely separate, but the social test is the love test. Do you love the brothers? Do you love? And no, I'm sorry. Do you love the brethren? That's not good either, is it? Do you love the cistern? Uh, <laughs> do you love the the fellowship of the saints? You know. Um, and then the third one uh, is the doctrinal test, the belief test. Um, whoever denies the son he says does not have the father the one who confesses the son has the father also which is you know remember Thomas saying you know we would see God if you would show us the father and Jesus says if you've seen me you've seen the father this is this is John's criteria for Christian orthodoxy and I think we should say no more and no less than what John is saying. Um, that is that our tendency is going to be to create a real strict hierarchy, first of all, in terms of you know rules, and also in terms of order in the church. Um, what John is describing, I think, is a very fluid situation that uh, the the three things that he gives us uh, is, I think, uh, you can take account of these things and apply them, you know, that he's picturing a kind of, we're at the end of the age here, that things are coming to a close. Uh, this world of darkness is passing away. Um, and so the... Gnostics, or the, the heret- heretics, I think will be just the opposite of these three things. I'll come back to this in a, in, in a minute. But the question that I wanted to ask is, what do you love when you love the world? You know, John's com- he's contrasting two kinds of love and his admonition to love one another is compared with the command not to love the world. And apparently love of the world makes love of brother and sister an impossibility. Why is that? Why would those two things stand in contradistinction to one another? And I think if we look at what he says about how the love of the world is constituted, what you love when you love the world is pictured as the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, That it's pictured as this world that is passing away. And so, John is going to use this term, cosmos, a world, more than any other writer of the Bible, uh, let alone the New Testament. And what I think he's describing is, first of all, it's a completely closed system. And by a closed system, I mean it's a human system. It's a system that is closed off to the transcendent, closed to God. And the other thing is that it's transient, it's passing away. So he says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. And we have to balance this with God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So John is going to, and, and he'll do this both in the gospel and here, that he's going to talk, use the term world and, or the term cosmos in two different ways. So we have to distinguish what he's saying. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That is, you can't do both. You can't love brother and sister and love the world. For all that is in the world, and I take this, you know, the lust of the flesh. Where else do we encounter this? Well, certainly that's Paul's picture. That's James's picture. But that's the Jewish understanding, is that lust, covetousness, desire is at the heart of sin. And I think we've done enough of this that we understand that arises in Genesis. I think that's what Paul's talking about. And I see this as a kind of reflection back on Genesis. I don't think a Jew is going to write about the lust of the flesh without having mind the Genesis 3 in mind. To my mind, that's it. And if you think here a minute... The lust of the eyes. Do you remember when Eve says that she saw it, that it was good for eating, and we talked about this last time, right? The difference between the auditory and the visual, and then the boastful pride of life. I take the the pride of life here uh, to uh, hey Aaron. Hey Aaron. Uh, to be. Uh, the idea of imagining that you have one way of describing this would be to say that you imagine that you have innate immortality now some people's theology may be better or some people may be better but the idea that, 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 uh, that you have life in and of in yourself which you could say that or understand that in many different ways That is, it may be that you believe in an innately immortal soul, it may just be that you have being within yourself. And so the three things, I think, refer back to Genesis, but you could refer to many passages. You could think of David, you know, and his encounter with Bathsheba. You could think of the, the same three things will arise again and again. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now, there's an interesting thing that's happening here, and that is that he's describing two systems of knowing. You know, what's the heresy? Well, the heresy is Gnosticism, and the Gnostics uh, are claiming then a particular kind of knowing, and John in the epistle is going to keep using the word gnosis. And I think what he's doing is saying, well, you have true knowledge. And so, the way that we could think about uh, the two systems is these people are talking about a static, you know, knowledge that is of an experiential or intellectual kind of, you know, ecstatic knowing. And the alternative to this is knowing Christ. And so, he's going to say, well, if you know Christ, this is a very different kind of knowing. No one can see God, so a knowledge based on sight. And I think that's what is happening with this lust of the eyes, pride of life, kind of knowing. Even if it's not a literal visual, it can be a kind of uh, metaphor, you know, the, of the mind's eye kind of knowledge. Um, welcome again, uh, God. Christ has exegeted the truth to us, is what John says in the Gospel, which is not available for vision, but is available only through the word and witness of Christ. So, the Gnostic knowing and knowing Christ, I think is that is the difference we described a little bit between the personal and the impersonal. That we can visualize, even a person... But the way that we would know someone visually does not account for their personhood, right? That the visual tends to reduce things to objects. The auditory is the way in which we account for personhood, right? We know God through his word, and so we know ultimate reality is personal, right? It's not impersonal. Now, that may sound fairly strange, but I think our tendency is to think of ultimate reality as impersonal, as an object, as a thing. You know, think of the Platonic forms here. Uh, Even systems in which there are gods or God, and I would even include the Islamic faith here, I think there is a tendency to picture God as himself subject to an impersonal order. So that person the personal is not the absolute reality. But, so once you get this idea that, no, that final or ultimate reality is personal, then it makes sense to have a, a system of knowing that is itself personal. So the ultimate difference between, uh, you know, one would be static, one would be dynamic, One would be ah ah-historical. You know, these Gnostics, are they thinking of a revelation that comes to them in and through history? No, that's precisely what they're denying when they say that Christ has not come in the flesh. They're denying a historical, dynamic, unfolding reality because their understanding is that ultimate reality is ahistorical. Uh, it's static. It's like the Platonic forms. The ultimate difference is between a knowledge based on desire, you know, the lust of the eyes, and a knowledge then uh, based, I, I would say, on hope, or we could just say on a, a knowledge based on Christ that is inclusive of hope. Um, so the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of eyes Uh, is ironically the world here is constituted and, and there's an irony here in the Gnostic understanding it's constituted on a static vision which longs for absolute unchangingness and yet it gives itself completely over to change. Right? Do you get it? Because they're basing their you know, knowledge on these things that are passing away, on this world. And I think what John is describing is this: the knowledge that this world, the way in which this world would constitute knowing. So, you know, we've done identity through difference. We don't need to go through all of that again. But part of identity through difference is that you arrive uh, at an absolute knowing or... uh, Uh, in a complete sameness that is completely static think here of Buddhism, Hinduism that you're absorbed, the one becomes part of the one there is no dynamism Uh, and of course the other word for this thing that is completely ah-historical unchanging and static is what would be the alternative word death right which, by the way, that's not. I'm not just saying that. That quite literally, in many religions, death itself becomes almost, you know, the description of the nirvana principle or other things. Because, because
1: then that's the absolute.
0: That's the absolute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, the final thing I've described uh, the the difference between these two knowings. It's static. You know, it's dynamic. It's based on desire or uh, on sight, or it's based upon Christ. But the final way, identity in Jesus, I think, is over and against identity in the law. I think this may be there in John, though John never brings it out in quite the way that Paul does. Um, But I still think it's, uh, the way that Paul is going to talk about it, is very similar to the way that John talks about it. Another way to describe, you know, when we talk about identity through the law, is just the law of sin and death in Paul. Uh, In the absence of rules to specify what love is, and this is the, the other difference, the only model we have, see, he hasn't said, here's what you have to do, you know, point A, B, C, D, you know, don't dance, don't play poker, don't... That's not what he said. He said, follow Jesus. Following Jesus is a very different model than attempting to specify a set of rules or criteria. And so in the absence of rules to enforce orthodoxy or... Uh, and with the whole community endowed with you know the the spirit is going to lead you into all truth I think again that we're talking we're describing a fluid situation the Holy Spirit enables us then to live out uh, 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 these things and what I'm describing is something that is maybe uh very unstable, or has the appearance of instability. It may not be very clean, very neatly organized, uh, and that's the nature of this thing—that it, it contains a flexibility as over and against a rigidity. Remember, the problem in the in the church is a kind of separation of sectarianism. And inevitably, sectarianism is due to an emphasis on law and an emphasis on organization. Hierarchy, right? We want a hierarchy. That's precisely, I think, what these Gnostics are arguing for. We want to be at the top of the hierarchy because we have a secret knowledge. We're the real leaders. Uh, And the reason that sects need law is very simple They need behavioral rules and authoritative ways of enforcing them so that they can maintain rigid boundaries and oppositional stances, right? When we say law, we say identity through difference, Mm -hmm. right? That we're going back to, we're not like them, we're not Jews, we're not... uh, And that's precisely what both John and Paul are getting rid of. Uh, so the Gnostics have come up with instruments of exclusion. They've excluded themselves. Zach and I were talking in Japan. There's the Yakuza. Does everybody know what the Yakuza are? No. And there's the Bosozoku. The the Yakuza are the mafia. But they're the most, it's the most hierarchical. Everybody knows who their superior and who their inferior is. It's You know, even though it's a lawless, seemingly lawless organization. Same thing with the Bosozoku, who I guess don't really exist anymore. They're kind of like the, they're the bikers, the junior mafia. But they also then have these very rigid hierarchies. I'd say the same thing is true of the Italian mafia. But what I'm, my point is, this is always the case. This is the case with any cult with any human type organization, they, are, they tend to be very hierarchical, very rule-structured, even if they're an outlaw gang. Um, whereas what John is describing is, is not that. I think it's just the opposite of this kind of system in which some are given the power to oppress others. There is no such power. In the in the body of Christ, so in John, the whole burden of maintaining boundaries and securing internal cohesion falls on faith, uh, which is understood as an affirmation of certain beliefs about Jesus, but primarily as personal allegiance to Jesus, uh, per, you know, love for Christ, love for God, love for one another. Uh, that's his orthodoxy. Uh, So closely related to this emphasis on love and the absence of law is John's understanding of identity or a practice. What is identity? Well, in John, it's a practice. So remember our distinction between oppositional, exclusive, you know, identity through difference, It's necessary, human organizations built upon, I think, a human logic are necessarily exclusive. But what John and and the New Testament are describing are non-oppositional, inclusive identities. Uh, The contrast between the realm of light and the realm of darkness is going to look different depending on which of these notions of identity is operative inside the community. In other words, uh, I think John operates with non-oppositional and in an inclusive account of personal identity. Uh, that is that inclusive in the sense that we know who we are in the same way that Christ describes his own identity as the dwelling of the Father and the interpersonal indwelling. Uh, That This is who God is, that God is not exclusive of otherness. God is not exclusive. In other words, God is by his very nature a plurality of persons who are intercommunicative and intercommunal. True identity is non oppositional intercommunity community communication communalism. I didn't say communist, but we could if do uh, it. So, you know, think here the, again of the the in John the last you know the uh, final chapters in which he describes the father and the son and the, indwelling. And all of this then is one that he's praying the believers will share in this. He's begun the letter by describing that we then are striving toward an inter-Trinitarian unity. And so just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit interdwell one another uh, that relationship holds true for believers. Uh, let me see. How am I doing on time? Okay, can I say one more thing about the word cosmos? Uh, It appears 188 times in the gospel, in, in the New Testament. It occurs 77 times, so half the total in John in the gospel. And then if you include the first, second, third John, uh, it occurs 23 more times so over one half of the times cosmos appears I think we need to say a little bit maybe we've said enough but how is this cosmos constituted well John is going to specify it's, it's constituted in darkness it's con- t- constituted as a lie it's constituted by unbelief it's you know in short It's the one who practices sin. It's of the devil and those who, you know, in the gospel he says, well, you're of your father the devil because you speak his native language of lying. In the epistle he's going to say the devil has sinned from the beginning and those who, you know, follow the devil um, will practice sin. So no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. Uh, and he distinguishes then, the, by this the children of God and the children of devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So I think we can take the where we started, our three tests, and do the opposite, that they do not walk in light. They walk in darkness. They do not have fellowship with one another. They have exclusion and hatred for the other. Uh, that they do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That is constitutive of a world of darkness. But let me say that this world of darkness, post-Christian, I mean, in, in the epistles, is an even more dangerous world because it now has all of the appearances of the light, right? They got Jesus, they claim Christianity, they've got a church, they've got a morality, they've got a hierarchy, they've got a doctrine. It's Christianity, in quotes, scare quotes. It's a simulacra, a, a fake Christianity, which is even more dangerous than just paganism, right? This, this is the thing that John fears, and this is what Paul fears, and this is what's happening. You know, Soren Kierkegaard talks about this. He says that, that in a sense, the demonic is unleashed by Christianity because the perversion of Christianity will become an even more dangerous thing than simple paganism. And I think that's what we're seeing in the epistle, that there is a profound danger that these people calling themselves Christians and creating this counter-Christianity, this anti-Christ religion, are in, in an insipid, dangerous evil of the devil In a way that I don't know anywhere else, you know, in the New Testament it never talks about this in this strong of language. That is, these people in the church have become the devil and the children of the devil. And that's what John's warning is, warning about. And that's John, you know, that's the great fear in the New Testament is that Christianity will be perverted. And so I think this, is, this book and this teaching is very key to us because, of course, Gnosticism is with us. The Gnostics are among us claiming to have life in the self, claiming to have one true you know, doctrine, claiming to have the right hierarchy. And so I think we need this epistle more, more than ever. Um I'll stop there. Any comments, questions? I was
1: right. wondering about in verse uh, six the Lord says in this version I'm reading, whoever pays the living must walk as Jesus did. So I'm wondering at that at the time he wrote this, when they when they would read that, what would they be thinking of how Jesus walked? Are they seeing the, reading the gospel? You know what I'm saying? I mean, yes, yes, I know exactly what you're saying. They walk as Jesus' walked. I'm right. thinking, okay, you know, Sermon on the Mount um, on how Jesus included people, how he taught people. Are they, are they reading all that? Are they hearing that from John personally?
0: Your question's probably better than than my answer because I think the, the
1: question
0: <laughs> the question requires some research so to but say, let, you me, let, let me take a stab at answering it and that is that I think a lot of what they're doing at this point in time is perhaps not on the I, I think there are gospels but it seems like that there's also a strong oral tradition. So that they're all telling stories about Jesus. And it may be both. It may be, yes, there's, well, there's these Gospels that are circulating. But they have access to an apostle themselves. And so John's probably telling them stories about Jesus. Polycarp's going to do the same thing. And so the oral tradition is going to remain very strong up until, you know, into the 2nd century. Not to say there wasn't the Bible and the canon, but there was no organized, in other words, they're not going to make a book out of it until the 2nd century. So that's the reason I was, I, I think that, you know, when they talk about the preaching of the apostles, you know, Irenaeus writes about the preaching of the apostles in one eighty or, you know, at the end of the second century. But what he's actually describing is primarily the Old Testament. That is that uh, the book that they all have access to, the written book is the Old Testament. They're finding Jesus there on the basis of the preaching of the apostles. And so I think the the written record uh, is coming and it's developing and um, but it may be uh, as much the, the personal resources also that they have. So I think they all know the life story of Jesus, and these are stories that get told and retold. Uh, and so they know how he walked. They know what he did. They have his example still in living memory, you know. And, you know, sort of it, 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 uh, when somebody, an important person, comes along you know we if we have our meeting here and suddenly you know i don't know uh, barack obama decided he wanted to attend our bible study you know for years we had talked about yeah he sat right there and i remember he made tea and uh if i remember right he had the english breakfast tea you remember how he blew on it you know and we'd talk we would everything that he did because that's you know we would just things that are ordinary uh, suddenly, when when you're, and I think that's the way people were, were, you know, everybody remembered Jesus because these these were events that were so important to all of them, and so the stories got told and retold. Uh, eventually, we have then when when we say walk as Jesus walked. Well, we we have resource then uh, the resource of the the four gospels. But I
1: understand it would be key to walking in the light. That verse, um know, people not, don't always talk about the Gospels. That's how we
0: need to live. Oh, a, oh yeah. Verse six. Yeah, that, that is where we
1: need to live. Hmm. That's how we need to walk every
0: day. Yeah, this was, there. there is no distinction between the life of Christ and the ethic of Christ as given to us in the Sermon on the Mount and the ethic of the early church, if your theology is one that would separate those two things and take the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, there are theologies that say, well, yeah, that was, Jesus did that, you know, he was the Son of God after all, but, you know, we're, we're just, we're only human. No, that, your theology is broken already. So the theology of John, to walk as Christ walked, is to take the ethic of Christ and live it out. To take the Sermon on the Mount and do this thing. Now that's revolutionary. And, it, and, it, and when you put it in those terms, you know, go back and read the Sermon on the Mount, that's hard stuff. But that's precisely the sort of revolution that we're to be involved in our tendency is to water this thing down and say, oh yeah, he said that, but of course we're not going to really turn the other cheek. You know, who would do that? Are am going to let people walk all over you? Of course we're not going to dot, dot, dot. We have to be practical after all. We have to live in this world after all. I'm being the devil here. I hope you get it. The, 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 but, but a lot of theologies are of the devil in that they would separate out the ethics of Christ from the ethics of the church. And that that was your point.
1: Yeah, and then also then to the follow on, when he talks about in the next verse about, uh, you know, this old command, is the message you have heard. Is that, I, I assume that's referring to, is that referring to walk as Jesus walked? that yeah.
0: Number seven. Or is that? Yeah, he does say he says that the walk in the same manner as he walked. I'm not this is not new, it's old. And of course the summation of the law by Christ, but also in the law itself. In other words, this wasn't Christ wasn't the first to say this. That you can sum up the law in love of God and love of neighbor. Uh, but he's, he is saying, he's referring this specifically to Christ. He says it is a new commandment uh, in that it is uh, true in him. We now know how to do it. Love of God, love of neighbor may have been a fairly abstract you know, principle, but now it's more than a principle, it's a person. So I think again that's the difference that the Gnostics I just take every cult to be legalistic. In other words, Judaism may not be the problem but I also wouldn't exclude that as part of the problem because what tends to happen is a going back to the Old Testament law as a kind of alternative to the law of love in Christ, and so those two things can be very different. Did I get it? I'm still okay. I I, I may have failed. You didn't fail. I just, I just I had something that I got to thinking about. Oh no, those were yeah, great, great questions. Jake, do you want to read the? Uh, the first one here,
1: yep, Just the first verse, yeah.
0: yeah. Or or down to the read a sentence. I'm not I'm not looking at the verses.
1: Yeah. Okay. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that so that you may not sin.
0: Oh, that's that's, that's it. Oh, 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 okay. I'll keep going. You go ahead. Do a little bit more there. All right.
1: And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the
0: whole world. So, several issues in this first verse. Uh, The the word advocate, I think sometimes we get, first of all, the term propitiation and the term advocate both get misconstrued here. Advocate probably, in this instance, has nothing to do with the law court. Advocate is just someone who walks along beside of you, someone who is, you know. Uh, and the other is the idea here of propitiation, I'm af- afraid carries the wrong connotation, uh, especially in a passage that's talking about don't sin. The issue is not has God's, you know, uh, uh, righteous requirement and anger been met in a sacrifice the issue is how can we not sin because sin has been taken care of in terms of our capacity to no longer sin but to be righteous so we're not talking about propitiation and an imputed righteousness imputed here just think theoretical No, we're talking about a real world righteousness. And remember that John is going to differentiate the world of darkness and the world of the light on the basis of how you live out righteousness. So I don't think that the death of Christ can be said not to have a direct impact upon a real world removal, expiation, rather than propitiation of sin. Sharon, you want to read uh,
1: another? Okay.
0: Uh, 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 the the next sentence. Yeah. Okay.
1: Uh, well, let me just clarify. Do you want me to do a sentence or a little bit more? Do a little more. Okay. I
0: didn't like to see how.
1: Right. <laughs> uh, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in, in him, it, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Uh, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked.
0: I don't, I don't know that that even needs explanation but maybe it just needs emphasis because the way that we do theology is again, you know, face question to separate out what we are to do as Christians from the ethic of Christ. This is clearly saying we do what he did. We keep his commandments. Does Christianity contain a law? Is that a
1: trick question?
0: No, 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 no trick. Go ahead, Maisie. The law of
1: love.
0: The law of love. So it, 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 it's not a principle, it's a person. It's not a disembodied, you know, it, it's something that we can follow. So again, think here of our discussion of an, what is the ultimate reality. Ultimate reality is personal. And it's not an ultimate reality that's been removed from us, but it's an ultimate reality that is revealed to us in the person and work of Christ. And so we imitate Christ, and by the way, that's the way we do things, right? We are imitators. We're all imitators. We're all, we're all, that's just the way we learn to do anything. So, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And that should be an admonition that all of us can can make, you know, that, in as much as I follow Christ, you know, and hopefully it's not too great a disparity between the two. Uh, So, uh, there is uh, a clear moral, ethical criteria for determining if you are a follower of Christ. By definition, right? Follower of Christ. You do what he did. A theology that would take out the following, that would take out the walking, that would take out the imitation, and make it secondary, is of the devil, according to John. Mm-hmm. Beloved, <coughs> I am not <coughs> excuse me, I am not writing a new covenant commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. I think I already said this, that there is a kind of progression from the gospel to the epistle that, you know, the light is coming and penetrating the darkness in the gospel. By the time we get to the epistle, the uh, idea is that darkness is now fading. The darkness is passing away. The light is penetrating and winning out. I don't know if that seems like that's happening every day in some cases. I'm not going to specify what that might be. But uh, the world may seem like a very dark place at times. Uh, But from even the early perspective of John, he is seeing the dawning of, you know, uh, what he's going to call the end of the ages. So there's a strong sense here of an impending end to one worldly order and the beginning of another worldly order that is inaugurated now in and through the church. We're, we're really short on time, I think. I'll, I'll stop there, uh, unless, if anybody had any questions.
1: Before uh, before we started uh, going through, you were talking about hierarchy, and uh, like I understand what what that is, but could you just run through again what what the connection between hierarchy and Gnosticism is that you were talking
0: about? I think that these people are exclusionary, okay, and they're doing identity on the basis of exclusion. And that gives rise to a system in which there are levels of insight. I'm thinking here I'm thinking simultaneously of several cults. Mormons yeah the Mormons you you work your way into you know the temple and Mormonism is based upon uh, the Masonic Lodge in which you know you uh, become a worshipful master, and then you know, you're given secret handshakes and the secret knowledge and the underwear and well, secret underwear, and the, the secret name. It all—it's straight up Gnosticism, to, as far as I can tell. But I, what I would say is the way I've said it may be wrong. That it's just another manifestation of a false teaching that always looks like Gnosticism. And so the hierarchy, the more we do hierarchy, I'm afraid the more the danger is that we do identity through difference. I've never been ordained, and I don't think I ever will be unless it's just an absolute practical, uh, because I just don't want to be of a different order of human being. Mm-hmm. That's the whole idea of the priesthood of all believers. Not that we have an ordained clergy that will mediate to us the truths of the gospel and carry out the ministry of Christ so that we don't have to. I think that's a lie from hell.
1: Okay, but what about the hierarchy in the pastoral
0: epistles? So there is a leadership but it's a leadership on the on the order of a family, of those who are older, leading, and that's all that elder means, that there are those who shepherd, but they shepherd not through, you know, Christ is the example here, he says that I've served you, if I've washed your feet, then you, you know, you're the servants of all, and so there is a system, of servitude, that unfortunately, I'm afraid that we've lost, Think here of the bishop in his robes, with his rings, preaching on, I'm actually quoting Kierkegaard here, <laughs> 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 preaching on the, you know, the give up all that you have and come follow me. Kierkegaard says, what a crock. He doesn't say that, but, uh, you know, that it, it's so hypocritical, it's so... You know, um, and so I think our tendency in the church is to make a special class that, by the way, is very much part of a Constantinian Christianity that just takes the powers of the secular state and converts them into something you know that is part of the supposed body of Christ. Uh, I don't. I don't buy it. I don't think that's the way. I don't think that's the, the leadership and the way leadership is supposed to work in the church. Mm-hmm. So anyone who insists that they're a leader, probably you want to be suspicious of anyone who sits, insists that they have privileges. They're ones you you want to be suspicious of. Anyone who says that uh, they don't need to treat other people with respect, honor, and love. They're the ones that you want to be suspicious of, mm-hmm. and that's just in. In I mean, it's a kind of epidemic that just has taken the church by storm. That people want to feel important, and the tendency towards arrogance uh, is the the human disease. But we're to have been cured. You know, we're we're called out of that, and so I, I think we should have nothing to do with that sort of pretense that we call. The pride of life, because that's of the devil. Hmm. In John's
1: words. (laughs) 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 So, in the in the body of Christ, even though it's like a family setup, we all have authority over one another in a way. Is it right
0: that there is a radical, uh, you know, uh, uh, what what is the phrase? Subordination to one another. This is jo- actually John Howard Yoder's phrase: a radical subordination. But it's right out of the the New Testament that it's not just women, you be subordinate, <laughs> but it's a mutual subordination, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, slaves, you do what your master say. You be no. Paul writes to. Uh, f- Philemon and says, Oh, Onesimus is your brother in Christ. Mm-hmm. And I wish you would treat him just like you'd treat me. And I'm not going to mention it, but you owe me your very life. <laughs> <laughs> By the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that this radical subordination is very revolutionary if we would carry it out. Because nobody does society that way, but that's precisely the culture and society that we're called to.
1: Oh, this is just crazy.
0: (laughs) The radical subordination or not following it. That one. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, no, it's... that The the gospel's a hard thing, and not many people... Who was it that, you know, was it... uh, 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 The he wrote uh, Chesterton said you know Christianity has not, not been tried and found wanting it's never been tried as of yet um, it, it's a radical thing if we could do this thing together we gotta to do it together that's step one and the other we can't lose the radical nature of it our tendency is to water it down and say well yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we could.' Ooh, you." Yeah we really can carry these things no I think we're really supposed to